you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. There's a question that I think regularly swirls in the minds of most Christians, uh, and, it, and it goes something like this, some, some form of this question. Um, I, I know that I'm a Christian, right? I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, but, and here's the question, how do I know that I know, right? I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, right? There's some, maybe there's some evidence in our lives. Maybe there's a moment that we recall where, where we came before God and, and acknowledged Jesus for who He is, right? And so we say to ourselves, I, I know that I'm a Christian, but how do I know that I know? How can I be sure, right? How do I know that I know. And we want to be absolutely sure, right? That's why we're asking that question. We want that kind of assurance. We want to not just know that we're Christians, but we want to know that we know that we're Christians. And I think for many of us, it's because we realize, we realize that the stakes are high in this, right? It's not really popular to talk about hell these days, not really ever, probably, um, and that's why we rarely do, but, but it's, it's real, right? If you, uh, if you believe the Bible to be true, then there's, there's, there's no real ambiguity around that reality, that hell is a real place, and that regardless of how cartoonish we've tried to make it seem to make us feel a little bit less uncomfortable towards it, it's, it's real and it's terrifying. It's an eternal separation from the God of life, Right? It's a place where evil is unrestrained. And that, again, like, just frankly, is terrifying. It should be terrifying to us. And Christianity, again, if we're looking at this book in particular, Christianity makes the claim that the only way that we avoid being given over to the natural conclusion of our evil-stained nature in this hell in this place that is devoid, completely absent of God's presence, is through the perfectly lived life of Christ, who two millennia ago was given over to be crucified like a sinner, and in being so crucified, the Bible tells us that He became our sin in that moment, such that God's justice towards our sinfulness was fulfilled. It was, it was punished, it was paid, right, in Jesus' broken body and is shed blood for us. This exchange, right, our, our sin being put on Christ and His righteousness being put on us is what rescues us from death. It's what saves us from hell. And it joins us to Christ and His family, the Father and the Spirit. And so God no longer sees sin in us because it was dealt with at Golgotha. It was so comprehensively dealt with that God raises Jesus from the dead as the just and only consequence to all of God's wrath, having been satisfied, right? It was done. The punishment was done, meted out. And Jesus rises in victory over Satan's sin and death. 
So again, many of us, when we ask that question, how do I know that I know, we go back to a time or a place where we mentally and or verbally acknowledged the Bible's claims about Jesus to be true. We said, that sounds better than hell, right? This, this idea that there is someone out there who lived perfectly in a way that I couldn't and offers himself to me as my substitute, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. And in our simplicity of faith in that moment, we relied upon the words of Romans chapter 10, right? Which says that if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what Romans 10 says. And so we remember that date. Maybe we write it down in our Bible or, uh, or, or somewhere, right? We remember that date. We remember that time and we say, well, I guess I'm covered. And then we read this verse, which goes like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This verse might throw some of our thinking for a loop for a minute, huh? Many of us go, okay, I know that I know because there was that one moment, there was that one moment where I mentally, verbally, in my heart, wherever, however you want to describe it, I affirmed this truth, this reality about Jesus. And so I'm, I'm covered, I'm covered. No matter, no matter what my current day-to-day -day looks like, no matter what my past couple of weeks has looked like, no matter, right, I'm covered because there was this moment. But then Jesus steps in in Luke 6 and He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And so what Jesus acknowledges in this sermon by these words is that one can call upon the Lord. One can call Jesus Lord and yet not treat Him as such. Right? The dictionary defines the word Lord as a person who both has and exercises authority. We don't like that word. Someone who has and exercises authority. So Jesus here is saying that it is possible to call Him our authority. It is possible to call Him our Lord and yet disregard that same authority in the way that we live. Jesus says, if I'm your Lord, if I'm really your Lord, you'll do what I say. What, essentially, Jesus is asking the question, what's the point of calling me Lord if I'm not, in fact, I don't know, Lord? Someone who has and exercises authority over you. And so I think this is honestly where, where some of the tension of the, that question comes up, bubbles up, right? I know that I'm a Christian. I know I had that moment. But how do I know that I know? And the reason we're asking that question is because in our lives we're going, man, some of this stuff doesn't line up. And Jesus himself says very clearly here that you can call me Lord, but you better act like I'm Lord too. And so maybe for some of us, right, that question that was already kind of lingering in the back of our mind, we read this verse and it 
makes its way further up into that lump in our throat. Well, fortunately, Jesus goes on in the very next verse to tell us what it means for Jesus to truly be Lord. He's going to tell us how, how to answer that question. How do I know that I know? He's going to give us the answer to the question. And this is what he says. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them. How do you know that you know? You come to the Lord, you hear his words, and you do them. Super complex, right? How do you know that you know? You come to the Lord, you hear what he has to say, and then you do what he says. Now, let's just walk through these really, really quickly. And I don't want to belabor this point because I think there's more for us here. But let's be very clear, not only about what Jesus is saying, but the order in which he says it. And the first thing that Jesus would have for someone to do if they want to, if, if they want to place Jesus in authority over them is quite simply to come to him. The first step in Jesus being Lord, like for real Lord and having and exercising authority over us is for us to come and acknowledge him as such, to simply come and to bend the knee. It is as simple as that day that maybe you realized that in you, you didn't have it, but that Jesus did and that he now extended it to you by the Father's grace through the Spirit's power. It is that simple. But here's the thing, I think what is not so simple is that that exercise is not a one-time thing, right? It's not, you, you come to Jesus once and you finished the come part, now you just move to the, to the hearing and doing. No, 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 no. Jesus is talking to disciples that he's already been speaking with, people that have already come. And he's saying, come. He's saying, come. He's saying, come. He's consistently inviting. He's every day, in fact, inviting you to to, to say to him, come. God, step into my life today. Be my authority day, today. I'm coming to you. I'm subjecting myself to you. I'm in submission to you today. It's an ongoing coming. We're always coming to Jesus. That's what Jesus being in authority over us looks like. We come to him. have to come to him, and we have to continue coming to him. Then what? We hear, right? The second step in Jesus being Lord over us is for us to hear him, right? Some in this vast crowd are listening to him here, and they're not hearing what he says. Not because he was inaudible, right? Not because like they physically couldn't hear, but because they weren't listening, and what Jesus is making clear here is that listening or hearing is, is active, it's engaged, it's something that we're actually involved in, right? Listen, there's, there's this really weird and awkward moment on every airplane flight that has ever existed. It's that moment... When like everything kind of gets quiet, you know you're about to take off, it, like you're getting ready to go, you're about to pull out from the gate, 
and the flight attendant starts to give you, right, the safety instructions. For me, like, if I was a flight attendant, this would be, like, the worst part of the job. Like, you can feign on me, you can throw up in the aisle, you can do whatever you want, but, like, this moment would be the worst. Because the, the moment you start talking, every single person on the plane simultaneously, like, in one singular moment, finds something better to do, right? It's like headphones are on, books are out. You've never read a newspaper in your life. You find one in the back of the, the seat in front of you, and you pick it up, and you read the newspaper, right? Nobody's listening. You just hear, right? That flight attendant could personally insult your entire family, and you wouldn't even notice. Your mind hears the noise, but in no way does your mind even remotely engage with the content. I fear that many of us hear Jesus this way. He's always sort of talking, and we're always sort of not listening. Right? We're all enjoying the plane together. But like if that thing goes down, we're going to be like, oh, wait a minute. That was important. So we've got to come to Jesus. We've got to hear. We've got to intently, actively listen to what it is that Jesus has for us. We do that when we go to his word. That's why we go to his word every Sunday. That's why we go to his word in our parish gatherings, because we know that we need to hear from Jesus. And then the final step that Jesus gives us is to actually do what he says. The apex of hearing is application, right? If you have heard, if you have taken in the content, if you have heard what Jesus has to say, if you've wrestled with its implications, the apex of that, the, the logical end, the natural conclusion of that is that, the, that you would then go and walk in those things. We discern the meaning of what we've heard and what we then ought to do. It's natural. It's very natural. And so if we believe that Jesus has authority, if we call him Lord, it makes sense that we would then listen intently to what he says, and it would then also make sense that we would then do what he tells us. Simple, really. Let's be very clear. What we do doesn't save us. It doesn't. Some of us are kind of like, okay, you're creeping a little close to that boundary, and I don't like it. Let me be very clear. What we do doesn't save us, but what we do does tell us which authority we're bowing to. Is it Jesus or someone else's? It does. Like, again, this is, there's nothing surprising about any of this. There's nothing illogical about any of this. There's nothing counterintuitive about any of this. We come... We give ourselves over, we listen, and then we go do accordingly, right? All of us do that. The only question is, is who are we doing that with? Are we doing it with Jesus or something or someone else? We are made to be under authority, whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not.
So it's as simple as that. How do we know that we know? Well, if, if we want to know that we know, then we're going we're gonna to come to Jesus all the time. We're going to hear from Jesus all the time. We're going to do what Jesus says all the time. Easy, right? And Jesus then tells us what the outcome is for those who do and those who do not. And this is, this is what he says in the, in the next few verses. He says, let me show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Again, like, there's just not a ton to do here. Quite simply, following Jesus is like building your house on a firm foundation, a rock. Building your life on anything else is like building your house on something that shifts, right? Something that is unpredictable, something that could move given different circumstances, changing circumstances. So Jesus is just saying, look, if you come to me, you'll, what, what, the structure that you are building will, keep, will be kept safe in, in large part because of the foundation, me, that you're, that you're building it on. But if you don't, it won't. Now here's what's kind of, what I think anyway is somewhat strange about, about all of this, this whole conversation. Jesus could easily say, as simple as this, he could easily say, obey me because I'm Lord, right? I am authoritative. I deserve your full, unquestioning obedience because I am, right? Like, he has every right to say that. Just do it. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know what happens afterwards. You don't need to know the outcome, the results. You don't need to know what your life will look like if you do or do not, right? Just do it because I said so. But Jesus makes it really clear here that doing what he says not only glorifies him, not only puts him in his right place, right, in authority, not only elevates him to the right place in your life, not only ensures that you are in fact his disciple, that you're following him, but it's also the very best possible situation for us. Like, I think a lot of us try to wiggle out from underneath Jesus' authority in large part because we think that that Jesus' interests and our interests are at odds, right? Like, Jesus, I, I, I want to follow you in this, but I just, I really believe that if I do this, it's going to be better for me. And Jesus is just going, no. No, it's not. It's quite the opposite, in fact. It's, it's when you live into, it's when you live under my authority that your life stands in the storm. Your life endures. What I love about this text, brothers and sisters, is that yes, it's hard. Like, okay, this uh, come here and then do what Jesus says. Who, who seriously right now hears that and goes, yeah, I'm good. 
Who looks at their life even in the last, what, three hours that you've been awake and goes, yeah, I'm like, I'm good? None of us, me included. What I love about this is that in this text that is supposed to be challenging, that is supposed to make us ask questions, that is supposed to make us look at ourselves, it's supposed to make us look in the mirror to see if there's a log there, right? It is supposed to make us squirm a little bit, and in it, Jesus says, but listen, but listen, but listen. If you come to me, if you hear my words, if you do them, you're going to be okay. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Not not hard. He doesn't say not hard, but he does say that it's going to be good. We don't deserve that, right? We don't deserve that kind of assurance. We don't deserve that kind of comfort, right? Like Jesus, if he were me, he'd be like, just do what I say and then we'll see, right? Like, we'll see. We'll see. I like to be a little withholding, you know? I like, to, I like for people to have to wonder whether or not they're in my good graces. <laughs> like that, it's like that cat, you know, that you have that you're not sure if it hates you or loves you. That's me. But that's not Jesus here. It's just abundantly clear. I love you. It will go well for you. Like, all of these things are going to be good. They're going to end well for you. However, if you choose not to, I can pretty much guarantee the opposite, right? The ruin of that house was great. So we don't deserve that kind of assurance. We don't deserve the graciousness and kindness of Jesus. Like, this text, more than inspiring fear in us, I think, if, we, if we're reading it correctly, should inspire us to want to come to Him, to want to hear from Him, to, to want to go and do what He says, because it ends not only in God's glory, which is chiefly important, supremely important, right? That, that Jesus would be named for who He is, that His name would be exalted in, in, in every realm of creation, right? That's massively important, and yet in all of that, Jesus also says, but I'm also going to take care of you. It's also going to go well for you. Like, why would we not come? Why would we not hear? Why would we not do? Now listen, I think the gist of this whole sermon in Luke 6 is, is really that, right? It's like, trust me, follow me. He's telling us, like, come, come, trust me, follow me. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to be introspective. You're going to have to think about all these things. You're going to gonna have to confront the reality that there's a pretty big gap between you and what I'm calling you to do, right? Like all, all of those things. And yet, the place where Jesus is going to end it is telling us where to find shelter, right? In all, in all of the upheaval, like there's upheaval, right? In, in all of this text, in all of the difficulty, in all, like, Jesus ends it by telling us where to find shelter. Jesus ends it by telling us where to go, 
This is so important. This is so important. Because I think, you know, our, our, most inevitably, our crises of faith, right? Like when we have those moments of, how do I know that I know? Are when life gets hard, right? Like when floods come, that's when we start asking these questions, right? How do I know that I know? How do I know that I'm in God's, God's good grace? Like all of these awful things are happening around me. How do I, like... None of us lives a floodless life. That's the reality. There's no such thing. No matter how many Instagram accounts you follow that might suggest otherwise. Nobody lives a floodless life. And so the question isn't whether or not we're going to have a flood or not going to have a flood. The question is, what are we going to do when the flood comes, right? Here's the reality. I would say that this, this past year of my life, um, the flood has come. I, and, I, you know, I don't want to go into a whole thing about me, but I do want you to know that this, this text for me is incredibly personal in what it's calling me to. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not standing up here as someone who is saying, I've got this figured out. You guys need to come here and do what Jesus says. I'm, I'm alongside you going, what Jesus is asking here is hard. And it is especially hard in the moments where it feels like the flood is raging around us. So, again, just as a, an, an example, I found out my dad had a, a stage four cancer uh, February of last year. So it's been one year. This is just kind of a good way to measure like stuff that's happened in a year. Found that out. My... my my son born in March with my dad telling me that he, he might not get to see him grow up. Right, my dad fights hard through chemo, does, does all of that, does everything that's sort of required to him. Surgery, has to have an emergency surgery, fails, passes away at his home in October after six long weeks of hospice. Um in the middle of all that, transi transitioning out of uh, a, an important job to me, you know, um, into a new job that I love and still part of this church, so I, it's, you know, nothing too wild, but that's all happening at the same time, trying to raise two kids at the same time. And then in January, my grandmother passes away, not to mention the fact that Nicole loses a grandmother in there too, so it's, like, it's just, you know, it's just been one of those years, man. It's just been one of those years. And I'll tell you what, like I've never been more regularly tempted to find comfort elsewhere. Like I've never been regularly more tempted to try to erect whatever house I'm building somewhere else. 
I've never been more tempted to find comfort in a drink. I've never been more tempted to find comfort in somewhere, someplace else. And I've been frequently frustrated this year. Frequently frustrated by doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I do want to do, right? Like, listen, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't think I'm much different from you. I just hold an office that requires some different things from me within the church. But, like, I, I know this text. Again, it's not rocket science, right? Come here, do. Come here, do. Got it. I also know that when we don't do, there's, there's a reality that comes out of that, Jesus says. And I still find myself consistently doing what I don't want to do, doing not what Jesus has told me to do. I find myself, honestly, quite frequently in that sort of Romans 7 reality. And if you've read Romans 7, you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, let me just read it for you. Paul says this, and I love that it's Paul writing it, because a lot of us like to look at Paul and go, man, that is, like, if there's any guy that had it nailed, it was that guy. But this is what he says. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he goes on, on and on and on, trying to figure out what's going on inside him. Trying to figure out, like, how do I know that I know? Because there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, right? And he finally, just almost in like an exhale of grief and, and despair, says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says these wonderful words, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we all wake up in that Romans 7 reality and the chief doing, right? Like the most important thing we can do is to come and invite Jesus to be our Romans 8 reality. Like, I think that's where we get things so twisted, right? We read here, come, hear, do. Come, hear, do. And then what we inevitably end up doing is flipping the order, right? And so we go, okay, if I, just, if I do enough, then I can come, and then maybe I'll hear something from Jesus, Right? 
Like if I get my act together, then I can come and then he's going to tell me what I need to know. He's going to reveal himself to me. He's going to solve all the little answers, like make, make pathways, solve things in my life that need solving. He's going, to, he's going to do all of that. He's going to organize it all. As long as I just do enough so that I can come and then hear. No, 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 no. The chief doing, the chief thing that we must do And the chief thing that illustrates where our hope is, where our foundation is, is to come. Is in the storm of Romans 7 to come to Romans 8 and say, therefore, there is no condemnation for me. I am in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Some of us this morning may even right now be dealing with the consequences of having built our house on the sand. And there is drywall, and there are nails, and there is sawdust and roof tile all around us. And we're going to be tempted to think We're going to be tempted to think that the answer is to try to reassemble all that real quick while Jesus isn't looking. And the answer, quite simply, brothers and sisters, is to come again. Is to come again, to hear again, and then to go out and empowered by this spirit that Romans 8 now says is ours, to go and do. So listen, I don't know what situation you're in. If you're um, oblivious to the coming flood, preparing for a flood that you see coming, in the middle of a flood that has just absolutely wrecked your world, that was my last year, or coming out of a flood and trying to find a place just to, just to hold your head above the water. The answer for each and every one of us is exactly the same. The next step for each and every person in this room is exactly the same, and that is to come to the Lord Jesus. It is to come to the Lord Jesus, and it is as we come to Him, in fact, that Romans 8 tells us in verse 11 that the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead will dwell in us. But the Spirit who raises the dead and the broken things of the world will also raise the dead and broken things in us. And that we can say to those things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And who is at the right hand of God, indeed there, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, right? Some floods. Who shall separate us? 
No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we should long to come to this place. We should long to hear these words and we should long to walk in response to them. It's not always easy, I know. But the answer is to keep coming, to keep hearing, and to keep doing. Let's receive Jesus' invitation to come in the meal. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, again for this morning, Lord. Just grateful to be gathered together with your people. Grateful, Lord, that you have allowed us in this moment to come to you, to hear your words. And Father, I would pray that by your Spirit, we would walk in obedience. Pray, Father, um, for those of us who um, are dealing with the floods of life. Pray, Father, that (laughs) if we built our house on the sand and we just utterly were not prepared, Lord, that you'd remind us that we can still come. We can always come back to the rock. We can always come back to that firm foundation to hear and to do and to rebuild. I pray for those of us who have a flood that we don't even see right around the corner. I pray that right now, Lord, that they would do the work of coming, hearing, and doing so that when that day comes, Lord, The bulwark stands, the house remains, the flood rages, but you sustain. Ask, Lord, ultimately that you would make us a people who are faithful to you, who gladly, eagerly, with great anticipation come to you knowing that in the hearing and the doing, you will, in fact, preserve us. Bring us to a place, Father, where there is nothing left to do but rest. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.